Welcome to the Demystifying Diversity Podcast, where each week we explore topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Daralise Lyons. In this episode, we're talking about how biased depictions of Muslims in media contribute to Islamophobia in America. You want people to recognize that your character is based on the religion that you practice, and you, you have, if you have a beautiful character, you have a beautiful religion. Dia Shadi Barakat and Yusser Muhammad Abu Salah were married on December 27, 2014. The groom wore a black tuxedo and a bow tie, the bride a gorgeous white gown, billowy like a cloud. She had turned 21 the day before their wedding. He was 23. They'd known one another since elementary school, and their lives had followed parallel and intersecting trajectories. He was a second-year dental student at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill School of Dentistry, the same school to which she'd been accepted in the fall. Aspiring toward a career in dentistry was only one of the couple's many commonalities. They also both loved basketball, were close with their families, and were involved in national and international relief work. When Dia and Yusor returned from their honeymoon, they moved in together and began to create their life as a couple. Part of that life included merging their already close and loving families. On February 10, 2015, 45 days into their marriage, Dia and Yusor invited Yusor's 19-year-old sister, Razan, for dinner. Razan was a sophomore at the North Carolina State University College of Design. She was majoring in architecture and environmental design. The three of them were planning to travel abroad that summer to provide dental and humanitarian care to wartime refugees. As they were sitting down to dinner, a knock interrupted them. Dia rose from the table, walked across the room, and opened the door. A gunshot slammed into him. He stared, uncomprehending, at his neighbor, who then fired six more bullets in rapid succession. The 23-year-old slumped to the ground while his wife and sister-in-law screamed. The neighbor entered, uninvited. He shot 21-year-old Yusor twice, first in the hip, then in the head, and 19-year-old Razan once, a single fatal bullet to her brain. Even though Dia was either already dead or clearly in the process of dying, the killer shot him in the mouth on the way out the door. I have friends. I have actual people in my life whose family members have been killed because of Islamophobia. One of them is Suzanne Barakat. She's from North Carolina. Her brother, Dia, and sister-in-law, Yusser, who had been married very briefly. I don't even know if it was just a couple of months and they were killed execution style in their apartment by a man who had been spewing anti-religious and anti-Muslim things on Facebook. And it was the, uh, his wife and his sister-in-law, all three of them. And initially it was, you know, this kind of shows you sort of when a story is presented a certain way in the media, the first way it's presented is the way people sort of hook on to it. But it was presented as a parking um, dispute. 
which it was absolutely not a parking dispute. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, they were in their apartment. They were literally in their apartment. He knocked on the door and opened the door. So it's really scary. That was Asma Rehman, National Chapter Manager at the Council on American-Islamic Relations, CARE, the nation's largest Muslim civil rights and advocacy organization. Prior to interviewing Asma, I hadn't heard about Craig Stephen Hicks, a white male atheist executing three young Muslim Americans. A lot of people hadn't heard about it. Or if they had, they'd heard it presented as an overblown reaction to a previous provocation, a conflict over parking. That's the motive Craig Stephen Hicks gave when he turned himself in. And almost immediately, the Chapel Hill Police Department released a statement to the media saying, and I quote, Preliminary investigation indicates that the crime was motivated by an ongoing neighbor dispute over parking. Hicks is cooperating with investigators. There was no parking dispute. Hicks had been harassing his Muslim neighbors since they moved in, telling Yusur and her mother he didn't like the way they looked, threatening the newlyweds and posting anti-religious, anti-Muslim comments on his Facebook page. But the media ran with the depiction of Hicks, as a man who, after having been temporarily overcome with his emotions, was now cooperating with the law. Because that's how we talk about white male murderers in America, when, in reality, what Hicks did should have been labeled a hate crime, or even an act of domestic terrorism. Aliyah Kabir, a consultant whose area of expertise is ensuring accurate and fair representation of Islam in reporting, spoke about the overt and implicit biases that are so often reflected and reinforced by the media. The Mujahideen masked um, on 60th and Osage um, a couple years ago. This was a national story. There was a man who went to the mosque for the evening prayer. He prayed the evening prayer. He walked out of the mosque, literally walked up to, to um, the, like three or four blocks up and took out a gun and shot a police officer in his car. Just out of nowhere, okay? So, of course, this is not, the media picks it up as what? A terrorist type of, you know, action when this was really the result of a mentally ill person who shot a police officer who just so happened to be Muslim. There was no reason for the FBI to come to the masjid and want to investigate and all of a sudden, but it it became a national story. So it was my job to go to the mosque and prep that imam and prep the people who go to that mosque and monitor the the press conference and make sure that, you know, um, the Muslim community was getting a fair shake. I was not going to allow them to turn this into um, a terrorist action because it wasn't. This was literally the documentation show he has been mentally ill for years. He has been on and off medication. Um, People, you know, find religion and try to find solace and and treating all sorts of illnesses, anxiety, things of that sort. So the fact that he was Muslim should not have played into this because if he went, if he left a church, it wouldn't be an issue. It wouldn't have been in the media a national story. It would have stayed a local story. This man left a church and shot a cop. But when he leaves a mosque, all of a sudden it's a terrorist act. It's a national outcry. No, I was not going to allow that. Here's Asma again, reflecting on the ways in which Islam has been unfairly and inaccurately depicted in the news. Why is it that 
when a Muslim American does something, that's the, the identity that is played up, right? And, you know, there are actually more white male terrorists in America, that ha- white male Christian terrorists, more, way more. Or, or There have been more deaths by white male Christian terrorists in America than there have by any means by any Muslim. And these are things that people don't really know, right? And the way that things are presented, oh, it's a mental health issue. Oh, he's a lone wolf, right? These, these words are usually used. Whereas when it's a Muslim, it's like, it's Islam, it's jihad, it's terrorism. It's, those are the automatic places that people go. These unfair depictions and the anti-Islamic bias they perpetrate have profound and painful ramifications. Whenever something happens, I can tell you the Muslim American community is like, when you hear that something violent happened in America, the first thing is, oh, God, please don't. Like, 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 let's just please let it be way far away from any Muslim, you know? Kind of like, even when Oklahoma City bombing happened, I don't even know if you know this, but like, um, a Muslim man was arrested initially. And it was, it was really bad. Like, the Muslim community really suffered because of that. My mom, um, you know, so we were in uh, the Islamic school at that time, and my mom was teaching there. And we had somebody shoot, um, like, with a gun, in the, he, shoot the front door and windows of the Islamic school, where there are children, like, all the way down to preschool. You know, because they thought it was a Muslim who had, like, done the Oklahoma City bombing. You know, so these are things that we deal with all the time, whether, you know, someone Muslim has done done it or not. And even if the person had been Muslim, what, you know, like, why is Islamic School of Greater Kansas City having to answer for this crazy person? The Oklahoma City bombing, the most deadly act of domestic terrorism in United States history, killed 168 people and injured 680 more. There had been no evidence to support the idea that Muslims had anything to do with the bombing. Yet minutes after the attack, media reports speculated that quote-unquote Islamic extremists or Arab radicals were the culprit. Even after Timothy McVeigh, a white Christian male, was arrested and the identities of his three co-conspirators, Terry Nichols and Michael and Lori Fortier, were revealed, many Muslims found themselves the targets of anti-Islamic aggression. The Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996, which came about partly as a response to the attack in Oklahoma City, specifically targeted Muslims, despite the fact that no one who was Muslim had anything to do with the horrific attack perpetrated by a white Christian man and his three white accomplices. Federal Bureau of Investigation Statistics show that only 5% of domestic terrorist attacks involve a Muslim culprit. And the Global Research Center places that number at an even lower 2.5%. Yet the irrational and baseless fear of Islam that seems to be so deeply rooted in this nation has consistently targeted members of this particular faith community, even though this is a nation that was founded on the principles of religious tolerance and separation between church and state. Islamophobic rhetoric, policies, and policing were in existence long before September 11, 2001, when 19 members of one extremist group attacked the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. 
This particular group espoused an ideology that is not at all representative of the beliefs of the approximately 7 million Muslims living and working in the United States today. But in the wake of the incident, the media and the government doubled down on their previous vilification of Islam. They targeted Muslims in America with the same lack of provocation with which Craig Stephen Hicks executed Dia, Yusor, and Razan. According to the ACLU, in the aftermath of 9-11, the United States government has engaged in documented instances of invasive and unnecessary surveillance, warrantless wiretapping, and unconstitutional detention of Muslims in America. Here's Ahmet Selim Tekilioglu, PhD, Outreach and Education Director for CARE Philadelphia. The American Muslim community, uh, the, there is a trust gap between many mosque communities and law enforcement agencies. If not with the local uh, police, then definitely with the FBI and several others because of all these civil rights um, uh, violations. Dr. Mona Masood, an American Board of Neurology and Psychiatry Certified General Adult Psychiatrist, described the ways in which a single isolated attack by one extremist group intensified Islamophobia in America. You mentioned, I mean, you've said Islamophobia, you mentioned 9-11. Do you find that there's been a shift in Islamophobia after that moment? Or is it like... I don't know because it's not my experience sure. and I don't know that I was tuned into it in sure. the same way, but sure. Yeah. Yes. There's definitely been a shift. I think like I was saying, I, I for me, I think it was relevant that it was a, a prior to nine 11 being a Muslim in America. Um, and then being after it's definitely for us, there's been a shift prior to nine 11. It was very much a personal thing. Like I, my religion was very personal and I really wanted, um, the hijab to be a representation of me, and and that, and it was very much about that. After 9/11, women who wore the hijab had to take a conscious, um, may had to make a conscious decision about not only being representatives of themselves but of the religion. Um, and that led um, in the community. I remember right after there was a lot of conversations amongst um, women about whether they even want to wear it anymore because it represented something more than what they wanted it to. It felt like it was hoisted on them that they now had to do this. And when a person's wearing hijab, like for us, the hijab is not the end goal. It doesn't symbolize that you have reached some state of spiritual excellence. It just represents one piece of a person's journey. Um, and so all of a sudden they're like, well, what does this piece even represent anymore um, for me? Like now it's not about this or that. It's not about maybe a person was doing it for modesty. Maybe somebody was doing it for identity like me. Now it had to be a representation. And so you had to go out there and know that people were observing you and anything you did would not only be a representation of yourself, but of the faith. Muslims are like this. Muslims argue at the checkout line, you know, like whatever. So it would became like, if you're going to continue hijab, you're going to, whether you want it or not, you're going to be a representation of Islam here. According to one expert, 69% of women who wear what is alternately referred to as a kimar, a headscarf, or a hijab reported at least one incident of discrimination, compared to 29% of women who did not. And the targeting of visibly Muslim women has been especially pronounced at various times in our national history. 
I wonder if there was ever any time for you, like, where it felt like somehow wearing a hijab became maybe more dangerous or, like, more challenging in some ways. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, after September 11th happened, um, you know, we were, I was in college, and I had some friends who actually didn't even wear a hijab. And their parents were like, you are not allowed to leave the dorm. Do not leave for a whole week. We don't want anything to happen to you. Okay. I've always been pretty unapologetic about anything having to do with me and my religion. So I actually didn't, like, follow that rule. I just went out anyway. And the amount of support and love that was shown to me on a pretty liberal college campus, you know, was amazing. But even on this liberal college campus, there was fear, absolute fear of, of wearing hijab. Definitely, there were women that took their hijab off after September 11th because they just did not want to get hurt, right? There, were, there, were the, there was a rise in hate crime, definitely, all over the United States. There was definitely violence against women um, that wore hijab after September 11th, and so many of them did take it off. Um, and then, you know, now four or five years ago with the rise of Islamophobia again, absolutely there have been women who did not feel safe with hijab and have taken it off. And it, it is scary. Even for me, like, like I, just, I said earlier, I'm pretty unapologetic about my religion, and there's nothing to apologize for, you know. I am who I am. I love it. I love myself, and I'm going to be who I, I'm going to be. But there's certain, like, times of the day, there are certain places and areas that when you go, you just, you never know what could happen. And right now, just the fear is so increased that you could even just be in a regular everyday, you know, um, place that you usually feel safe. And if anybody felt like they wanted to do something, there's like a target literally on our head. While for many Muslims in America, discrimination and othering were especially intense in 2001, these abuses have never stopped. In fact, they have markedly increased since 2015. Across the United States, mosques have been vandalized, local government officials have denounced Islam, and state and federal legislatures have put forth anti-Muslim laws. In an ongoing research and reporting initiative, New America, a nonprofit public policy institute and think tank, documented 763 separate incidents of anti-Islamic aggression between 2012 and the present. Usma told me that although she was aware of a palpable shift in the aftermath of 9-11, she didn't personally feel othered or at risk until more recently. So, you know, about five, six, four, five, six years ago, when the language in our country was shifting um, during the elections towards really, I feel like separating people out, you know, um, I, for the first time, started to feel really othered. I had never, I had never really thought of myself as not American ever in my life until then. And of course, like I said, sometimes, you know, yes, I'm different than the regular Joe Schmo, but that doesn't make me not American, right? And so it was as an adult that I felt 
the most othered. And that was, like I said, about four or five years ago um, when all this language was being used during rallies. It was being used, you know, to like really push this political narrative forward. Um, So that was a personal experience for me where I feel like I went through kind of like an identity crisis. Because if I didn't belong in the country that I was raised in and loved and am, then where do I belong? In the aftermath of the 2016 election, Muslim women were verbally and physically assaulted. Some assailants even attacked their victims while evoking the president's name. No doubt these Islamophobic patriots felt emboldened in their violence based on the fact that the country had just elected a man who declared during his run for office, I think Islam hates us. Then, the 45th president doubled down on his discrimination against Islam. One of his first acts in office was to sign an executive order banning foreign nationals from seven predominantly Muslim countries from visiting the United States for 90 days, indefinitely suspending entry to the country for all Syrian refugees and prohibiting any other refugees from coming into the U.S., for 120 days. In a nation that promises religious freedom, members of a specific faith community should never feel that they are being actively discriminated against. Here is Nihad Awad, the executive director and co-founder of the Council on American Islamic Relations. Islamophobia uh, is not something of the past. Islamophobia is active. Islamophobia has been mobilized and they normalized by powerful people in our society. It was easy, it, it used to be easy for us to condemn and push back against Islamophobes because usually this will come back, uh, you know, to us from, you know, ignorant people, uh, people who do not like have standing in society. And we used to use, we used to remedy these things by, you know, information, by also taking actions and the law and uh, the society and politicians will be in support uh, of our efforts to push back against Islamophobes and people who commit hate, hate crimes and promote intolerance against the American Muslim community like others. And we, we started to feel that th- those offenders usually, when, whenever they offend Muslims, we find that they offend Jews, they offend African Americans. So it's like, uh, it's like an industry. It's like, you know, the same kind of people who hate others <laughs> they hate you, and the same uh, people most likely who who discriminate against others, they discriminate against you. So they're like an equal opportunity offenders, and 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 also we have to be united. But when it comes to Islamophobia, unfortunately, in the past four years, we started to feel that Islamophobia is becoming uh, normalized and empowered, like people like Donald Trump. Uh, you know, throughout his 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 uh, election campaign. Uh, 19, uh, you know, uh, 2015, 2016, into his administration, he's been he's been taking like you know direct shots at at the Islamic faith and the American Muslim community and mosques. Um, and obviously, when you see the president, uh, your president, uh, promoting xenophobia and Islamophobia, um, he's giving green light for people to 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 commit discrimination and 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 uh, and take actions against the American Muslim community so so we're standing against powerful individuals 
an administration that believes in division, that thrives on division. Um, so, and 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 the Muslim community has been uh, at the receiving end uh, since Trump became a president and before he became a president. Uh, hate crimes are are are, are striking, um, and it's been impacting uh, individuals, families. Uh, it's you know, and at the same time, we we find ourselves, you know, in the same spot where other communities have been there for a long time. So, the, the good news is we're uniting against hate, no matter how powerful hate is. Hope and faith is going to prevail. We could be the healing when you're feeling all alone. We could be the reason to find the strength to carry on. In a world so divided, we shall overcome. We can be the healing. We can be the flower in the gun. We can be the healing. We can be the flower in the gun. Hope and faith must be accompanied by action. Thanks to the wonderful work of many individuals and organizations, such as Nihad, Awad, and CARE, there has been a concerted push toward equity and equality. It's especially important to stop xenophobia, Islamophobia, racism, and all other forms of othering before they can even begin. And this means working with youth, teaching them to embrace the intersectionality of human identity and to celebrate a variety of different traditions and practices. Salima Suswell, president and CEO of Evolve Solutions and Halal Resource Group, helped to increase the recognition of religious diversity in Philadelphia. One of the initiatives that she personally helped to spearhead, and which she said had a great deal of meaning for her, both personally and professionally, was to help ensure the recognition of Islamic holidays within her Commonwealth school system. With the youth, we started with the Eid holidays. We wanted to start with something that we knew we were just a long time coming with getting change in this area, we knew that this was something that the community universally could agree upon. Everybody wants the children to be able to have their holidays acknowledged in school. Children should never be marginalized to the point where they have to make a decision um, between their religion and education. And so that was the first thing that we did, and we got it done, and it was a great, great, great time for Muslims. It was a great win for Muslims in this commonwealth. And so that was something that was important to do. The children felt validated. They felt like they mattered. They felt like other people understood more about who they were and what their faith was like. You know, they, they, they lived through, you know, learning so much about other religion and culture, religions and cultures through Christmas and Easter and Rosh Hashanah and so many of the holidays that they know and their friends celebrate. Now their friends get to learn more about their holiday. And so this is an amazing mo- a moment for me as a mother for me, as a Muslim girl, well, a Muslim woman now who once was a Muslim girl who, who attended public school in the city of Philadelphia when people did not know what our holiday was and we just had to have an a unexcused absence and talk to maybe the people close to us about what our holiday was. It's, it's a big deal for me um, and the people around me. It's essential for children to see themselves and their traditions represented. Hedia Cesar, a New York University graduate, 
a founding member of the MCC Alumni Board, and a current MBA student at NYU Stern, spoke to me about how the literary landscape is finally beginning to shift insofar as it pertains to how Muslim-identified characters are being depicted within children's literature. In the last few years, there has been a plethora of books being published that really are strongly portraying minority characters that we haven't seen before. Um, so that's really amazing. And I think there has been this larger push just given the current world that we're living in. Uh, but I would say when I began my research, I had noticed that it really wasn't until the early 1990s that most children's literature for Muslims were published. And at that time, most of those books were nonfiction, which really included children being introduced to the basic tenets of Islam and religious holidays. So there were books like Celebrating Ramadan, I Am Muslim, uh, but there were very few books that were really portraying the everyday lives of diverse Muslim communities, just the story that happened to have a character who happened to be Muslim and also just giving them an insight into their day-to-day -day life. Uh, the books that were out there, though, also had a very narrow uh, view of what it means to be a Muslim. So, and also being set in the Middle East, a lot of these books were sending messages that the Muslim experience is actually negative or it's about conflict. Um, there were also a lot of stories that were being uh, perpetuated about being like an oppressed Muslim female, for example. And while these stories, they don't allow for the nuances of the conditions in a lot of Muslim countries and cultures. I don't want to say it doesn't account for reality that exists. It does, but it cannot be generalized for an entire religious population. So I think as a result, what this does specifically for Muslims who are in America, it puts them in a position of conflict. It creates challenges of identity building because they're seeing the way their religion is being presented. And it makes them question really what is it and whether they want to associate with it or not. Representation needs to be expansive and inclusive in order to account for the lived experiences of individuals. And this can only happen through diverse and intersectional narratives that show authentic interactions between a variety of people. One's spiritual life can be an important element of their identity, but it's only one element. And even within that element, there's a spectrum of interpretations and denominations. There are so many Muslims from many countries. Um, there are different denominations within Islam. Um, and so it's really thinking that it's not a monolithic religion, in a sense. There are different ways of how it's being practiced and different varied cultural traditions that intersect with Islamic practices and texts. So oftentimes, you know, especially within the Muslim tradition, people tend to think that there's the normative belief system which sort of, you know, seeks to eradicate these differences based on, you know, on color or, or on, um, you know, wealth level and, and whatnot. Uh, but of course, those are aspirations and to a certain extent that they might happen, this brotherhood, sisterhood, uh, community, but then in everyday lived experience, still those differences come into the play and they may really um, shape you know, the, the very, very experiences that these communities might have. So sometimes in the religious communities, there's this idea that, oh, like, you know, we are all belonging to the same religion. So, um, you know, these differences do not matter. But I think 
actually does. Islam is not one thing. Just as Christianity, Judaism, and all the other major world religions are not one thing. Yes, within any religion, there may be certain universally held truths. But beyond that, there is a diversity of experiences and beliefs. We can't make determinations about others based on our own biases. When outsiders look into, um, into let's say, you know, the Muslim communities, several things happen, right? So one is, oh, like if somebody is Muslim, then they are religious, which is not always the case, right? So people might have Muslim name, they may come from that background, it doesn't equate to religiosity, right? Um, second is, you know, somebody is Muslim, then they should be a walking expert on all the doctrines of the faith, and in addition to that, all the international politics that's happening anywhere in the Muslim world, and that's, for adults, it's easier to navigate, not so much so for children, school-age children that I work with, that often times, you know, let's call it unintentional harm or bullying can sometimes be, you know, because of this, right? So everyone is seen as a walking expert on doctrine, and then you're asking a, a nine-year-old to explain something that is very difficult for even adults to explain or just react to. Um, then another level of, you know, homogenizing happens that everyone is the same, right? So you are like, you know, the diversity is within the community is, is, is eradicated. Um, so these things come together, right? So these three things can really make the broader experience traumatic exchange, right? Because you're always trying to undo some perception about the community, right? So some erasure about a portion of your identity. It's multiple racism. Imagine if you are a Muslim, and if you are Muslim and African-American, if you are Muslim, African-American, and a woman, uh, if you are Muslim, African-American, woman, and wearing hijab, so all of these layers of uh, indicators of being seen as the other, uh, with every layer, there's, there's a, a degree of racism that you you are being confronted for being Muslim, you are being confronted for being African-American, you are being confronted for being a woman, you are being confronted confronted for being a Muslim, African-American woman and, and wearing hijab. And it goes on and on. So you can, you can imagine when, when one person or one family or one community that has all these intersectionalities, I mean, this is unfortunately um, the, the reality of you know, uh, one community, and even if you are white American, for example, and, and, and if you become Muslim, if you convert to Islam, even if you are like a white American woman, for example, automatically you become a minority. Uh, you become part of the Muslim community, and if you start wearing hijab, you become, you know, uh, all these identities uh, become like, you know, a, a a disadvantage in the views of the racist and, and the perpetrators of racism. Um, and, and we have to protect all these identities because it is your right, it is who you are, you cannot change who you are, and you cannot change uh, to, to please other people. There, is a, there are laws, these laws are not perfect, they're not enough, but these uh, laws 
at least provide the minimum protection for individuals' choices. And those, uh, you know, choices cannot defend themselves. They need advocacy. They need legislation. They need awareness. They need people who can work with others, but they need people to believe in them above all. We want to humanize, uh, you know, every race, religion, culture. And the only way we can do that is really to show more everyday stories of how people have lived their lives, really. According to ING, only 38% of Americans say they know a Muslim, whereas 62% have never conversed with a member of the Islamic faith before. At the same time, there are approximately 7 million individuals in the United States who identify as Muslim, and Islam is the fastest growing religion in America. It is a travesty that so many people have not cultivated relationships with their Muslim neighbors. It's especially problematic because despite the fact that 62% of Americans have never interacted with a Muslim person, a 2016 Brookings Institute poll reports that 41% of Americans have an unfavorable view of Islam. People fear and judge those they do not know. We make assumptions about one another, assumptions that are rooted in inaccurate depictions and unsubstantiated biases. Dr. Mona Masood knows what it feels like to be prejudged, both personally and professionally, based on a single article of clothing. I remember a supervisor of mine when I was in residency. Um, uh, he was a psychiatrist himself and also very much about the kind of work I do, having been forming deep relationships and continued relationships with patients. Um, just very bluntly, I was talking about a patient and he was like, okay, okay. And then finally he said, um, so, um, what do your patients think about your hijab? And I was just like, well, I've never asked. And I, isn't it about supposed to be about them? And I just went off on all my rationalizations of why it wasn't brought up, but he actually challenged me on that. And he goes, I want you to remember, it's not if your patients think about your hijab, it's what they think about your hijab. They are thinking about it. It's there. It's not something that you're just, it's as much as you may want people to be able to see all those um, intersections about you, they're really, that's what they're seeing first. And you have to be able to understand that and because it'll help you understand um, when they're talking to you, if they're filtering things based on that, if they are, um, you know, because whatever, information they're bringing to you in their back of their mind they are that is important in how they're conveying that message and um and i thought about it and and, and i thought he has he has to be right because even it, it's and then it started becoming aware in even small things i'd be talking to my patients and then they would apologize like for something like cursing and I'm wondering why they're apologizing for cursing. And then I'm and like, oh, they must assume that I'm a person who doesn't curse. And where are they getting that impression? Probably from the hijab. And then it became like all of these kind of connections. And then, so then I started, instead of, you know, waiting for these kind of things to say, I would ask them, what does it mean to you to be, be um, your psychiatrist being a woman who wears hijab? And I would have a session just on that. 
And I'm like, is there barriers? Are there resistances? Are there things that become easier? Where, you know, what role does this have in the room? I asked if any of the things her patients told her came as a surprise. No, they were almost something I didn't want to hear, but it did not surprise me. It was things that I thought I worked so hard to overcome, and now I'm just one of everyone else, and I'm just as American, and I have all of the rights to be here, and all of those things. Like intellectually, um, I really convinced myself that that was the case, that people didn't see the hijab. But that's like convincing myself that people didn't see my skin color or didn't see anything else. And it's just not real. And there, and it became kind of an acceptance I had to first come to that what they see of me still doesn't determine who I am. I get to still be who I want to be. And if, I, if this something is important to me, I still get to be that thing. Um, and that's what it helped me grow. Um, so then it really became less about me being who my patients wanted me to be, which I think was a subconscious issue that was a hang up for me as a doctor and therapist and someone that I could just be who I am and let them be who they are and have a more honest conversation. Unfortunately, it often falls to the person being othered to initiate these conversations or they might find themselves being asked to prove their identity in some way. At first, it was very nerve-wracking because I was under, and it was all of my own making. Um, I really prided myself in, because I see myself also as American, but I really, for some reason, really convinced myself that by speaking without an accent, with the, uh, by dressing in a certain way, maybe not the hijab, but everything else, by being able to follow the cultural trends, by being able to use the idioms of, uh, of now, um, all of that um, made, me, um, made me American. And, and I, I myself even started ignoring, and I mean also just because I wear it uh, you know, um, outside the homes you know, all the time, I, do, I don't become so aware of it on my head anymore. So all of those things, I, I think I was um, in a way trying to convince myself that I am just as American as everyone else. And it was that, and, and then when that got brought up to me and then forced me to kind of really understand that there is actually this barrier, whether I want to admit it or not, um, and it really could affect the outcomes for my patients because are they filtering because they don't think I can hear it or I don't or maybe she if she is whatever they know about it if they even assumed I'm a religious person um, whatever that meant to them what did it mean to see a person who's practicing a faith of any sort if they are say um, atheist or agnostic or if they are you know um, from the LGBTQ community. Like what were things that felt like they could not address with me because of what they were seeing the hijab as a representation of? For example, when somebody says to me, oh, well, this is what we do at our thing or our this or our that, our gathering. What do you do in your culture? And my answer is like, but my culture is American. <laughs> what do you mean my culture, you know? Um, that is othering, right? Because like you're centering your experience as the norm 
And what I do on 4th of July is we go see fireworks and we barbecue. Like, you know, we do the same thing that you do. And it may look a little bit different, but my culture is American culture. Every single one of us carries a number of simultaneous intersecting identities. It is our ability to hold these identities simultaneously within ourselves and to find safe avenues of self-expression with others that allows us to locate where we fit within our individual self-conception and within the larger social matrix. In this way, according to Hedia, literature, TV, and film provide a mirror through which we can see ourselves and others. I think the importance of though having diverse characters and having representation is important because it gives viewers or readers a perspective. Um, a lot of my uh, research was focused in Rudine Bishop's metaphor of literature being mirrors, windows, and sliding glass doors. Um, so you have this ability really to see yourself being reflected in what you're reading, or you're able to look into it, or you're being able to step in and be immersed in someone's experience. And as we're living in this multicultural world, it's so important to see these different perspectives and understand these experiences. Salima Suswell has a broad view of the ways in which our various intersecting identities contribute to who we are and how we navigate the world. She sees these identities as a direct reflection of all the various cultures of which we are a part. The reason why I say cultural competency is my favorite thing in life is because everything starts with culture. Your, your home, inside of your home, there is a culture. Inside of your family, there is a culture. Culture, I always say to people, and it's a provocative statement that I make, and I sometimes lead conversations about cultural competency with the statement that cultural competency is more than telling white people how to treat people of color. Let's move past that. Uh, so once I make that pretty provocative statement, I have a folks' attention. People are who they are because of what they've, what they've lived through, what their experiences have been. It, 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 all of this informs who we are and how we live and how we work and how we think and how we approach life. Religion is one of many factors that has a bearing on how we approach life. It shapes some of our interactions, and ideally, it challenges us to hold ourselves to certain standards of behavior. Here's a short message from our episode sponsors, without whose support the Demystifying Diversity podcast wouldn't be possible. I want to tell you about an emotional intelligence program called Next Level Trainings. In 2019, I personally went through Next Level Trainings, and in all sincerity, the Demystifying Diversity podcast would not exist if I hadn't. The leadership trainings opened my eyes to some blind spots I had in my life. They increased my capacity to give and receive love, to forgive myself and others, and to contribute more to this world. They really helped me, both personally and professionally. Next Level Trainings uses experiential exercises that are designed to help you to see yourself as you are, shift your perspective, and start forming sustainable habits that will transform your life and, by extension, your community and the world. 
In a supportive environment, you'll come to see yourself and others through a more open, powerful, and freeing lens. I can say from my own firsthand experience that the trainings increased my capacity for love, connection, and vulnerability. They were life-changing, and I can't recommend next-level trainings enough. And Next Level Trainings is offering Demystifying Diversity podcast listeners $50 off on Shift, their introductory virtual training. To add even more value to their offer, if you register for and attend the Shift online training now, you'll receive a free voucher to their in-person discovery training valued at $495. The voucher can be used when pandemic gathering restrictions lift. So go to nextleveltrainings.com slash diversity, that's nextleveltrainings with an S slash diversity, and enter the promo code diversity. You'll be glad you did. Speaking of savings, for most of us, when it comes to money, we have no clear direction. We know what we want financially, but we get confused as to how to get there. John and Patty Lavin, the owners of Lavin & Associates, a branch of Primerica, are committed to offering all people the opportunity to achieve financial freedom. Lavin & Associates offers a complimentary, cutting-edge financial needs analysis that works sort of like a GPS, or I guess you can think of it as a money map. By giving you a clear route from where you are to where you want to go, this analysis empowers you to become properly protected, debt-free, and financially independent, so you can worry less about money and enjoy your life more. I had a financial planning session with John a couple of years ago, and I went from $0 in the bank to more than $10,000, plus a retirement account. To set up a time to speak with John, a financial advisor for 40 years, and receive your free financial needs analysis, call him at 610-453-2331 or email him at johnlavin at me.com. That's J-O-N-L-A-V-I-N at me.com. And let him know the Demystifying Diversity podcast sent you. There is such nuance to the ways in which religion is practiced. As an agnostic, I don't pretend to be an expert on any faith tradition, but there are a number of themes that came up a lot in my interviews. You know, the Muslim faith is very much based on community. Um, when we think about good, doing good in this world, it's first and foremost about our relationship with Allah, our relationship with God, And then it's, you know, our family, and then it's community. Community is, you know, after those relationships, front and center of our actions, how is it going to affect everyone on a greater level? Um, And giving back is a huge, huge, huge part of our our religion, actually. Um, And then you can... You know, there's so many different cultures that are a part of Islam, right? Like, there's so many countries all over the world where um, um, Islam is practiced. So within people's own personal cultures, which goes beyond religion, there's even more emphasis. Everyone, you know, it may look different in different cultures, but the base is that you must take care of your community. There are, so there's something called fard. Fard means mandatory um, in the religion, Right. 
So there are things that are mandatory for yourself. And then there's also things that are actually mandatory, the rights that the community has upon you in our religion. They're written out. It's, you know, just taking care of each other um, and being there for each other in the plethora of ways, right? Like supporting mothers, supporting families, supporting young people, supporting people with special needs. All of that is, is so paramount in our religion, and it's, it's very clear. There are many tenets of, of my religion that are conservative, that are on the conservative side, which would, one may would maybe think, well, you know, Muslims, I'm shocked that there aren't more Muslims who are Republicans. Why? Because we lean as a way of life more to the conservative side. However, liberty is a huge part of what we do. Submission, free will. Submission to the will of God is a free will. And that's very important. What is going to be your contribution to to the cause of justice? Because Islam, justice is a foundation. Justice not just for Muslims, but justice for everyone in humanity. So as a Muslim, I have to even call myself out if I've done something wrong to someone who happens to not be Muslim. I have to write that wrong. You know what I mean? So it really, really is a part of our foundation to eliminate oppression, eliminate injustice, wherever it is, however it is, however it's being implemented. Islam gives us three ways that we can contribute to a cause. One, you can speak out against it. That's where I'm at. I'm always talking out against something, you know. (laughs) You can, um, um, you know, I'm I'm sorry, the the first is that you can take action, you know, change it with your hands. The second is that you speak out against it, and the third is that you hate it in your heart and you pray for it to be alleviated. And that is the, the third one is the weakest of it, but if that's where you are to continuously pray for the oppressed to be relieved of that oppression, that's what you do until you find the strength where you can speak out against it, until you find the strength where you can change it with your hands, whether that means going out and registering the vote or protesting in the street. So to me, now I speak as a Muslim, uh, you know, social justice and equality is really part of faith. It's it's a belief before it's a law. Uh, so if if you believe it, then uh, you uh, you you will love it, and if you love it, you will live it, and if you live it, you will protect it, uh, and 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 you 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 build around it. So you know, uh, believe it, love it, live it, and protect it. It is devastating that so many of the media's portrayals of Islam and the ways in which many political leaders have depicted the faith are to say that it's un-American, when in actuality, supporting liberty and justice for all, a concept that is espoused in both our Bill of Rights and Pledge of Allegiance, is an essential tenet of the Islamic faith. Of course, the United States is supposed to be a place where church and state are separate, But even so, any depiction of Islam as un-American is based on a false understanding of the religion. It should go without saying that people express their beliefs in a myriad of different ways. Nevertheless, Islam encourages freedom of choice and of expression. So for me, you know, I know that for me, when I wear hijab, when I wear a scarf, and when I'm in hijab, which is like in modesty in general, um, 
I get to choose what I share with the world and what I don't. And I really, for me, having that agency is hijab. Islam is not here to box you in and tell you you can't because that's kind of how it's been, how it's been kind of uh, sold in media that, you know, women can't do this and children can't do that and can't, 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 can't. I always find that these rules, you know, that Islam is just not a bunch of rules. Islam is a lifestyle that maximizes your experience as a human being. You will get the most, you will get the max experience out of being Muslim while you're on this earth in preparation for the hereafter. Let's return to Dia, Yusor, and Razan. Had they not been murdered by their neighbor, they'd have all three finished their respective programs of study, and they'd have gone on to join the workforce. Who knows what their lives would look like, or if perhaps they'd have brought other lives into this world. We'll never know what they'd be doing or where they'd be, if people who had read Craig Stephen Hicks' posts on Facebook or heard his derogatory comments toward his visibly Muslim neighbors had intervened. Sadly, no one spoke up or spoke out. The idea that violence actually happens based on hate of another, I think we see that today, right, what's happening now. But, like, Islamophobia is a very real thing, and it manifests itself and hate crimes all the time. And, you know, I think we just kind of feel maybe disconnected from that because it's so extreme, right? But I'm just, I'm here to say as working for the largest Muslim civil rights organization is that it happens and it happens regularly. We see that, right? So people become desensitized to even the discrimination that they face. People like normalize it, right? So there is usually underreporting of the discrimination, the abuses that many of many people of color experience. I mean, bullying is just one case. Like you know, there is definitely like you know, severe underreporting happened. And sometimes it is it's sad, but like you understand. I mean, be not here, but in in a sort of focus group in from one of our California uh, chapters. It came up that, you know, students were like, look, I mean, I am called names in school, like people do that, like, you know, bomb explosion name mm -hmm. sounds, and like they, Usama, whatever stuff like that, when a helicopter passes by, they say, oh, the police is coming for you, but I'm not going to report it, not because, you know, I'm, I'm afraid that I'll be called a snatch, whatever, you know, those concerns are there, but they said in this case that, look, I'm not going to, to go and worry about it when my relatives are being butchered in Syria and they are running for their lives. They're living in a situation and why should I just cry about another person just calling me something? I'll just deal with it rather than, you know, report it, right? So some of our communities will do this or like, you know, here in, in urban settings, when there's so much gun violence and other, and other stuff that, that plagues communities or economic insecurities, sometimes, you know, these kind of things are put to the background because there are other concerns that are much more key and vital, even for the kids. So they oftentimes will say, yeah, so what? Like, yeah, it happens. And then, you know, we deal with it. But the microaggressions are like it's death by a thousand cuts, you know? I mean, it's so 
it's it's excruciating. And at the same time, I think the microaggressions can often lead to these macroaggressions because it speaks to a underlying level of like hatred or othering or um, dehumanization Absolutely. of people. Absolutely. And we try to, of course, you know, encourage that that normalization or desensitization to these things don't happen. Um, but it's it unfortunately um, oftentimes happens, and and I think that is that's like you said, you know, it's important to to not allow that um, to go unchecked because it it really can create a snowball impact later on. If we want to stop the snowball effect of hatred and othering, we have to move away from the idea that any lived experience is more normal than any other or that our way, whatever that may be, is any more or less legitimate than anybody else's. This means better representation, and it means centering the voices of Muslims in America, something about which Nihad Awad is especially passionate. We are empowering our community to tell their own story uh, and become our own voice uh, and and be the microphone. Uh, For so many years, uh, others have been telling our stories about us. Uh, whether in the news, in movies, in even in in, in the text, school text books, uh, this is this is changing now. Here's Asma Rayman again. I think it's really just opening your mind up to the idea that none of us are the center of anything. You know, I'm not the center. You're not the center. And then moving from that space out, right? So once you move out from that space, yes, trying to learn by, like, expanding your circle of um, friends and people you associate with and actually being really authentic about connection, not just, like, the token other person in my group or the token person I'm talking to to get to know them, but knowing them for who they are and not what, they, what you think they represent. To be better advocates and allies, we have to be willing to be uncomfortable. Activism comes from discomfort. And it comes from really experiencing discomfort. And so for people, when they want to be allies or they want to really be there, again, for people who are, um, you know, in the state of being of being oppressed and of being um, of being discriminated or being stigmatized, all of these things, and they really say that they want to be there, they gotta know how to be quiet. They gotta know how to use their own privileges in order to center someone else. If you're wondering what privilege looks like or whether or not you possess it, when we are happy, when we are unco- when we are comfortable, when we, we are used to something, we don't want to change it. That's the whole concept behind privilege. It might seem difficult or even daunting to step outside your comfort zone and begin to build relationships with people you see as different than yourself. But it's something those of us who are minorities do all the time on a constant basis. And it's actually a valuable skill. In many ways, it's what enables someone to become an advocate against oppression and to develop empathy for others. 
once you're able to really come to understanding of who you are as an individual, I think you become more thoughtful to be able to communicate and make sure that other people are being remembered and thought of as well. When you are someone who's either been through, who's been oppressed because of their identity, has been marginalized, faced discrimination, racism, and you do this work of understanding that and first dealing with that, the next thing is then also you start to think about the other communities, the other people that have also gone through really hard times, and you want to make sure that it doesn't happen for the next generation. I would say for me, it's not just about the Muslim American story or, you know, a Middle Eastern story. It's really thinking about the black community, the Asian American community, um, all other communities that really also need a voice and being a partner with them and saying, I don't know your story specifically. I don't know your experience, but I and I want to be there with you as an ally and support you and making sure that this story is also being told and it's being heard. Hi, this is Anna Marie. Daryl and I thank you for tuning in to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. We'd love to hear your voices on topics of diversity. So join in on the conversation by calling 844-888-8148 and leave us a message or drop us a note through the website, www.demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com, and we'll do our best to answer your question during our Q&A episodes. It's only by becoming attuned to our own identities and experiences that we can develop empathy for others. Before we look outward, we have to look inward. Self-reflection. In approaching uh, what might be needed by the world, I had to take a look in the mirror and ask myself, what, 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 what were my needs? You know, what, what is it that, that I needed to, to be fulfilled and, and, and to be serving in, in the uh, appropriate and in, in the best capacity that I could be utilized in and, and you know, what, what gave me joy. All of those things started first with me. And so first it was, it was a, a, a process of self-awareness that, that I had to undergo in order to, to identify first what, what I needed to, to build myself up. And, and then that helped me to understand or at least to to be pointed in the appropriate direction as to what the world might need. Then, when we are ready to look outward. That that idea of like, oh, America's the best, or, or this family, this institution, this niche, yeah. whatever is like, has it all together, or is yeah. supposed to meet some standard. Like, I think it yeah. can be very alienating and fragmenting and painful. We are brothers and sisters in humanity that no one has a, a, a superiority over another except by their character. If we hope to create a society in which individuals can be authentically and unapologetically themselves, we need to embrace the beauty and richness of diversity. We also need to develop meaningful relationships with people who can teach us more about the world than we could ever learn by remaining in our respective and constrictive comfort zones. Dr. Masood has some exceedingly valuable advice that she gives to people who are living within a society that makes it feel at times like who they are is not okay. This is something she tells her patients about how and why it's important for them to do whatever they need to feel safe and sane and healthy. Don't stop being you based on other people's expectations. And in the end, 
you are the only advocate for yourself. Whatever way you can achieve that or work on it, that takes, um, that is more telling and more um, admirable and more um, defining of you than your struggle. It is admirable to continue to honor your own visible and invisible identity markers. At the same time, it's important to value the diversity we see reflected in the world around us. There would be so much less suffering if we could all practice the golden rule by treating others as we would want them to treat us. Thank you for listening to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe. And if you'd like to join in the conversation, visit demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com or call 844-888-8148 and leave us a message. Many thanks to interviewees Aliyah Kabir, Asma Rehman, Nihad Awad, Ahmet Salim Tikilioglu, Dr. Mona Masood, Salima Saswell, and Hedia Saizar, and to our episode sponsors, Next Level Trainings and Labin and Associates. Each episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by me, Daralise Lyons, with the invaluable assistance of Anna Marie Jones, reporter, producer, and co-collaborator, Paul Kondo, assistant producer and editor, Raina Epstein, creative assistant, Sunny Taylor, content editor and creative collaborator, Zach James, marketing manager, and Monica Lynn, graphic designer. The music you heard is The Flower by Michael Franti and Spearhead, featuring Victoria Canal. If you'd like to explore these topics outside of the podcast, pick up a copy of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity, wherever books are sold. Join us next week, and in the meantime, Let's practice empathy and work together to create a more inclusive world.